0: Praise be Jesus Christ. So I left Facebook about 2014, and I had no idea how happy I really was because of it. Because I've just come back about a month, a little more than that ago, and I see the condemnations that Catholics keep throwing at each other, and arguments made without any sort of nuance and so I'm presenting what I have to present in this homily and I admit that it'll feel like I'm nuancing you to death and I don't want the point that comes across to be that there's so much nuance that we just can't figure things out. For the most part, these kinds of uh, moral reasoning happen in a split second and it's not too hard. The problem is that As a society, we're really not well formed in the moral reasoning. And so we need to take take appropriate steps there and be honest about what we actually know and the things that are maybe true, but in us are just opinions. Today, Jesus tells us his plan for how to deal with problems in the church and with each other. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Brother means fellow Christian. This is where we must always start. It obviously excludes, in general, complaining to authorities or Facebook without taking things up directly with the offender first, unless to do so would be dangerous. The reason that we should do this is to practice humility in admitting that we might not have the whole picture and so that the offender's heart might not be hardened by public embarrassment. Jesus continues, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Don't skip this step. Sometimes we need somebody else to give us an impartial view of things. Then, if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Sometimes public shame is the only way to convince someone that they're wrong, but we need to avoid it whenever possible. It should be our last resort. Finally, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. This means exclude him from the community until perchance he should permit, uh, repent. This is the basis for the practice of excommunication. It comes out of Jesus' own mouth. But let's not be mistaken. Excommunication is not about condemnation. It's about providing an opportunity For conversion, when fraternal correction, as Jesus described it, hasn't worked. It is a work of mercy, the most extreme version of admonishing the sinner. Unfortunately, it has been much abused and misunderstood. So what does it mean? Excommunication means that a person cannot receive any of the sacraments, including the sacrament of penance. A person can be excommunicated automatically, but that requires knowing that what they did has that penalty. This includes things like apostasy, teaching heresy, abortion, sharing the contents of an overheard confession. Other excommunications can be imposed by a bishop, but he needs some cause to do so. In both cases, the list is pretty short. In most cases, a priest can lift the excommunication in the confessional and then absolved. In any case, the priest will know what to do. Overall, the system as it is needs some reform. What isn't excommunication? It isn't a sentence to hell. St. Joan of Arc died excommunicated, and St. John Chrysostom was frequently excommunicated and those excommunications, though unjust, were legal. However, the excommunicated person needs to consider whether they have sinned. That's the whole point. It also doesn't make a person no longer Catholic. You're still in the church and still bound to our laws if you're excommunicated, so you'd still have to go to mass, fast, tithe, and all that. Now, Such a person may not want to, but that's another matter. Again, the purpose is to give an opportunity for conversion without committing sacrilege by receiving the sacraments, and to avoid scandalizing people to whom the offense has become public. These situations, however, are fairly rare. Then there is the practice of the Church whereby certain people are excluded from receiving Holy Communion. This is not excommunication, nor is it a legal penalty. Whenever we commit a mortal sin, we are morally obliged to avoid receiving Holy Communion because to do so would be the sin of sacrilege, another mortal sin. Now, for a sin to be mortal, I mention this because people are still really confused about it. The act itself must be grave. For example, deliberate disbelief of Catholic dogma, blasphemy, not worshiping God on Sunday, working excessively on Sunday without excuse, disobeying authority on serious matters, lying about serious matters, murder, serious anger or hatred, getting drunk on purpose, stealing something worth At least a week's wages, any sin against chastity in thought or in act. These are examples of grave sins. For them to be mortal sins, that is, deadly, you must freely commit them with the knowledge that they are serious. If you truly have no choice, it's not mortal. If, through no fault of your own, you don't know it's serious, It isn't mortal. Some people talk in such a way as to make mortal sins seem nearly impossible. Others make it seem like everything is mortal sin. Please avoid these extremes. We should be honest with ourselves. If, God forbid, you should find yourself in such a state, please get to confession as soon as possible. Ask for God's help to truly repent. Say an act of contrition. God wants to forgive you and to help you. However, be aware that you have to intend to avoid these sins in the future by God's help. If you're unwilling to make that commitment, it's in the act of contrition, then absolution would be invalid. If you happen to mention that you are unwilling to the priest, then the priest is obliged not to absolve you. This isn't a punishment. It's an opportunity to come to true repentance. It is, again, not excommunication, although, as a result, you mustn't receive Holy Communion. However, let's say that a minister of communion knows that you committed some mortal sin the other night because you happened to tell them. This minister cannot deny you communion. There is a specific exception. When a person is publicly known to be persisting in serious sins, this includes situations where persons are known to be invalidly married. It includes people who have publicly spoken consistently against the teaching of the church. In such cases, the pastor should have a conversation with the person first. If that's not possible and the risk for scandal remains, then the minister is obliged to refuse. Holy communion. Of course, the person should already know not to come, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Moreover, public sins do require public repentance. Does this apply to politics? Happily, we have the answer. In 2004, when the United States bishops were considering the question, they wrote to Rome and asked. Rome responded, At the meeting of bishops, then-Cardinal McCarrick said that Rome had said that it was basically up to the local bishop to figure out on his own. So that's what the bishops adopted as their policy. But he lied. The letter was soon leaked, and it turned out it specifically addressed the matters of abortion and euthanasia, saying that ministers of communion were obliged to refuse communion to any politicians known to vote in favor of relaxation of restrictions on abortion and euthanasia." That letter explained further that a politician's voting record on capital punishment and the declaration of war, even though these were life issues, can't be subjected to the same action, because those matters are for prudential judgments, and people can come to different conclusions about them. Similarly, politicians who consistently and clearly support any intrinsic evils, that is, things which are evil with no ifs, ends, or buts, must be denied communion. Relatively straightforward, but virtually never practiced. What about voters? In most cases, public denial of communion wouldn't apply. But is there mortal sin involved? Here we need to explore a distinction. Voters for candidates participate in the evil that they know the candidates intend. So we need to understand the principles of the morality of cooperation in evil. It's called formal cooperation when we help someone else to do evil because we agree with the evil that they do. This is always forbidden. If we disagree with the evil that we help someone else do, it's called material cooperation. Now under the heading of material cooperation, If our help directly contributes to the carrying out of the evil, such as giving someone a ride to their drug dealer, even though we personally disagree, it's called proximate material cooperation. This is also always forbidden. If our help is not the direct cause of the evil, it's called remote material cooperation. Such cooperation is permitted, though it's never obliged, in two specific cases. Either the good that we reasonably expect to obtain through our action is greater than the evil done, or the evil which we remotely cause is less than the evil that would otherwise be done. These are called proportionate reasons. In terms of good we wish to obtain, if I like Starbucks coffee, I am permitted to buy it because the good it does me is so much larger than the fraction of a cent that may or may not go to some evil cause. Again, I'm not obliged to do so. In in terms of a greater evil that may, may be prevented, we have the case referred to in Rome's letter about sin and voting. From all of this I hope it's clear that claims that you hear saying that it's never a sin, let alone a grave sin, to vote for some candidate or another or some party or another are simply false. Rather, we have to work through the moral reasoning to come to a conclusion about a specific case so that we can know that our vote is morally justified. Here's the quote from that letter. A Catholic would be guilty of formal cooperation in evil and so unworthy to present himself for Holy Communion if he were to deliberately vote for a candidate precisely because of the candidate's permissive stand on abortion and or euthanasia. When a Catholic does not share a candidate's stand in favor of abortion and or euthanasia, but votes for that candidate for other reasons, it is considered remote material cooperation, which can be permitted in the presence of proportionate reasons. So what are the proportionate reasons when it comes to abortion? As of in 2017, 800,000 unborn babies were murdered in the United States per year. To make our comparison, we need to consider quality and quantity. While many different evil acts strike against human dignity, we need to consider the way in which they do so. There are different goods which pertain to human dignity, namely life, liberty, and property, and these form a sort of hierarchy so that life is foundational for the other goods to which a person has a right. So, for instance, a person shouldn't put his life in certain danger to preserve liberty or property, but he could choose to do so in order to preserve another life. We need to distinguish between policies which lead to direct action against these goods, and policies which may result in the loss or damage of these goods independent of the intention of the law. The former will always be qualitatively more evil than the latter. So, for instance, a law which makes stealing legal will always be more evil in itself than a law which results in a situation where an equal number of people are moved to steal. Although note, in this case, the policies that could create such a situation are probably more evil, but for other reasons. We Catholics only weigh consequences after we've determined that two possible actions are morally similar. Also, intentions matter, so that policies that intend evil, or promote people intending evil, are worse than policies that just happen to result in the same amount of evil being done. In terms of quantity, we have to look at actual numbers and actual possibilities of outcomes. So, for instance, when considering the possibilities with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, we could not exclude numbers of abortions in states that we are confident won't outlaw abortion. In addition, we would consider that some people in some states would then cross state lines or resort to back alley abortions, but it would still be a significant numerical reduction. At any rate, referring to what I said before, we would be better off by having good laws even if people see fit to disobey or circumvent them. So for instance, Ohio has about 20,000 abortions per year, and Ohio would be likely to outlaw or nearly outlaw abortion if it could, as would a little more than half of the states. But as you see, there's a bit of gaming out the system in such choices. Considerations of how much effect a particular politician can have on actual outcomes matters. We should be very careful not to be far-fetched in our considerations. These are practical matters, not fantastical delusions. Let's be concrete. Actual stated policy tends to be more important, though we do have to be mindful of political pandering. So what do we conclude? There's a lot to consider. And again, I don't want to lead you to the conclusion that we can't actually come to clear conclusions about this stuff. But there's a lot of moral reasoning to take into account. So let's go through some possibilities, and this is just a short list. If we had two candidates in favor of abortion, it's easy. We just consider other matters. If they're not close, we could choose the lesser evil, although we'd never be obliged to choose the lesser evil. If one candidate was for abortion and another had a health care policy which we could tell would result unintentionally in deaths, We would have to compare not only the numbers, but also the intention involved. If one candidate supported abortion and another supported some attack upon private property, we would have to determine that the attack on private property was greatly more prevalent than abortion because property is a lesser good than life. Again, such calculations And again, how does one even come to making calculations when it comes to comparing qualitative and quantitative differences? I don't want to get into that. They need to be made about likely outcomes, not just absolute numbers. In practical terms, it might be more useful to consider the level of panic that an opponent of evil causes in those who are in favor of that evil. On an emotional level, I think we're as a culture very blind to the different evil realities that we face because of how information is shared. I think we're particularly blind to the reality of abortion because we don't see it. To really understand it, we should consider how we would react if eighty-eight hundred thousand people were being murdered in the streets each year. What might we do to sacrifice ourselves to stop it? What might we do to prevent such an action when we knew where it was going to happen? What might we do to change the circumstances that lead people to make such choices? If our acts were proportional to the reality, other people might begin to see the reality for what it is. But our actions aren't in proportion. In fact, almost everything in this country is out of proportion now. And so we're just called hypocrites. Jesus tells us today to give others the benefit of the doubt when we are calling them to account. Because the point isn't to prove ourselves righteous. The point is to move minds and hearts. And if minds and hearts can't be moved, even with an impartial judge or peer pressure, then we need to let go a little bit. Let's not say more than we are actually certain of, and watch out for Facebook on this, it's a mess. And let's be patient, and let's not lie to ourselves or accept other people's lies about what it means to be Catholic, and be certain if you interpret everything, including your Catholicism, through your politics, then your politics is your religion, not Catholicism. Instead, let's be Catholic first. Let's put Jesus' words to work and let love be the summation of the law, which does no harm to our neighbors. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen.